0: Genesis chapter 17, starting in verse one. We're gonna go through a couple of things, the covenant response of what God says to Abram and then Abram's response back to God. But also we're gonna cover circumcision. So if you've come this morning to learn about circumcision, then you got the right week, all right? This may be your, this may be your week to do some, some interesting, you're going, some of you are squirming now. They're going like, I don't know what he's gonna say. Genesis chapter 17. I'm reading out of the ESV. You guys probably have CSV, whatever it is that you have, but just know it's gonna be just a little bit different and what's gonna go on. Genesis chapter 17, verse one, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. He literally is saying, I am El Shaddai. I am the Almighty God. I am the ultimate. I am the, the pinnacle of anything that you would ever think about. A while ago, we we sang, God, you are so good, good, oh, oh, okay. That's my singing skill right there. But he's so much more than good. We understand what the song is saying, but God is saying to Abram, I am not only good, but I am God Almighty. Everybody that you come into contact with is gonna be worshiping all kinds of other gods, and that's what is going on with Abram's journey um, all across to, to get to his appointed land. He is seeing all of these idols that are set up, and then everywhere that Abram was going and following God and following God's direction, he was setting up altars to God. He was trying in his own way to make God known in the nations, even though everybody else followed somebody else, but they were following something that they thought was good, but they didn't understand there was something that was great. So this morning, the first thing that I want you to ask you is this, is that as we look at Abram and his covenant response to God and God's response to to Abram, is that the, the songs that we've sung this morning, do we really mean them or are they just things that we... We kind of, the beginning of worship service, and we just talk and we just sing. Because God hears every single thought that we have and every word that we say, I think we're going to be accountable to him, to what we do. And so when we say, God, I will follow you no matter where you lead, no matter what it costs, you've already sang that this morning. Do we really mean it? Or are we just giving lip service to God and saying, oh, it sounds good and it's got to catch you tune, but are we listening to what it is that we're saying to God? That's what we're doing here this morning is that we're not here to hear a sermon that will tickle our ears and go, oh, this is just the greatest thing in the world because I promise you it's not. But what we're here to do is to join corporately in worship and fellowship with one another and say, I need to be around my people. I need to worship my God. And I need to find out how I can promote my God to a world that is lost and dying. And this is what Abram is doing in his sojourning to um, to follow what God is saying. It was September eleventh, two thousand and one. Do you remember that day? Some of you do, some of you don't, some of you were not around. But for those of us who were around, it's the day that you'll never forget, right? I remember where I was. I was sitting on my couch in my living room. I was a college minister at, uh, at Arkansas Tech. I was a BCM director at Arkansas Tech. And so we don't do things in the morning in college ministry. We do things at night. And so I had the morning off and I was sitting drinking a cup of coffee, watching the news. And all of a sudden on a news break, the word came through that, that something had hit the, one of the twin towers. And you remember it because you were you were probably watching the same thing or hearing the same thing that I was at this very same time. And what had happened is there were four commercial jet, um, jets that were hijacked and they were, um, they, one hit the, um, or two of them hit the the World Trade Centers, both towers, and then one hit the, the Pentagon. And one went down in the fields of Pennsylvania and they think that it was probably going directed towards either the White House or to the Capitol building. They don't really know. They just know that it was going to go into Washington airspace and do something, do some damage there. Um, It's interesting that um, in our plans and the things that were going on in order to be able to keep America safe, we had a military installation that was right outside of Washington, D.C. And Washington, D.C. had a 121st flight squad that was ready and available. In fact, they were on a one minute notice of anything that was going on. Up until that time, nothing had ever touched Washington, D.C. There wasn't any threats, but there was a group of of, uh, soldiers, military, air force, that were there ready on one minute, alert and what one minute alert means this is that wherever they were no matter if they were at the dining room table or in the bed or out visiting or doing whatever they had one minute in order to be able to get in their flight suit in the cockpit of the plane and have wheels up off the ground in one minute. And so they had trained and they prepared and they did all this stuff and their crews were together. They knew exactly what it is that they were supposed to do. No telling how many flights that they had tried, how many practice runs they've, they've got in order to get that one minute response time. When the response came, when the alert came for the one minute um, um, response to, to, um, to get on in flight on September 11th, 2001, the alert happened and they, they, wherever they were, the whole team assembled at the plane. But the only problem was this day in time, they didn't know what the threat was or how long it would take in order for the, the threat. They, they knew planes had, had been hijacked and they were going down, they were running into buildings. And so this particular group, the 121st flight group was given a 30 second alert, which means They had 30 seconds in order to get in their cockpit, wheels up, off the ground, ready to engage any of the enemy that was airborne. 30 seconds. First Lieutenant, Heather Penny, was scheduled to be on alert. And as she received the alert, found out it was 30 seconds on her run and her sprint to the tarmac in order to get into her plane, she knew exactly what was going to go on. She knew that there was no time for the flight crews to assemble all the, main, uh, the ammunition, all the bombs, anything that it might needed as a weapon in order to be able to take down any kind of enemy plane. She knew 30 seconds wasn't enough time. In fact, 30 seconds was about uh, the only amount of time that it could warm up the jet, get her in, get her positioned. She wasn't even able to strap in. It would have taken too much time in order for her to seat belt herself in. So she took off wheels up in 30 seconds knowing full well if she encountered any kind of resistance, any kind of adversary, she had no weapons, no guns, no bombs, no bullets, nothing. The only thing she had was her plane. And her intent was that if she encountered a hostile plane, she would just have to ram it and just a suicide mission, a one-way mission it kind of brought to light for me after I read this story years and years after, those are stories you don't really hear a lot about, but they have unfolded over the years that you hear about the heroics that people would would undertake just to be able to do something for us, to fight for our safety. And so we're so thankful for those in the military that are doing all kinds of things, things that we don't even know about. And so we just trust that, what they do is for our best interest. The story kind of relates to Abram because here he was in his own town, in his own place with his own people. And God speaks to him and says, I want you to go to a land that I've appointed for you to have. And not knowing where that was, not knowing what that meant, Abram just packs his family up and just goes. And he does what it is that we sang about and said, wherever you go, whatever it costs me, I will go and follow. Now, Abram wasn't the best Christian at that time. He wasn't the best God follower. In fact, he had a lot of flaws, just like you and I. But yet, he was sympathetic to the call of God, understood what it meant, what it meant, and said, no matter where I'm going, no matter what it's gonna cost me, I'm gonna go and do. Just like First Lieutenant Heather Penny, whatever it costs me, My duty is to go and follow my orders. This morning, are we following the orders of what God has in our lives? I think just for us being here this morning together as a church, you could have been any number of places, but for some reason, God woke you up this morning and says, I need you to be at church this morning. And you heeded that call and you say, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna be a part of the fellowship that is here this morning. And God knew where you were gonna sit. So he knew what you were gonna say. He knew the person that's gonna sit beside you. And so maybe that person needs a smile or a hug or something like that. So if you've not smiled, even smiled at the person beside you, you better get in God's will and start doing it right now, okay? So go ahead and do that. Go ahead. If you're not sitting by somebody, what does that tell you about God? I don't know what plan it is, but he's got something. Verse one of chapter 17. 17. When Abram was 99 years old the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him and if you have a pencil in your in your hand Circle, I am, which is talking about God, God Almighty. This word God Almighty is literally El Shaddai, meaning I am the God who is the greatest. God is telling you that he is not just good, but he is great. He is the ultimate, there is no greater than him. He wants to tell Abram and just reaffirm to Abram, I am God Almighty, and he's talking to him in a voice. Walk before me and be blameless Abraham. Now the word Abram and Abraham, I'll, I I kind of wanted to title this thing the artist, formerly known as Abram, but I thought maybe that's been stolen, so I'm not gonna do that. Abram means in reflection to to, um, to behind him means exalted father. Now there are some people that you have a family that there's a, a patriarch in your family. There's a guy that is the the main guy that everybody gets around family reunions and you want to go see grandpa and see what he has to say and talk to him and enjoy them. The the guy who is the head of the the clan, the head of the family, he is the exalted father. No matter how many kids he has, he is kind of the father figure to everybody. This is what Abraham was his name Abram meant exalted father looking behind as in okay you're the leader of this clan even though it's not very big but in chapter 12 of the, the book of Genesis God had made a covenant with Abram and said you will be the father of many nations this is like 13 um, years ago that he said this the first covenant was was brought out now 13 years later it's still not happened It's still God has not given Abram a family and made him the the father of a multitude of nations. But God had promised that he would in his covenant response with, with Abram, this has still not happened. So 99 years old, he's still not there. God says, walk before me as I make my covenant with you. Behold, my covenant was, was with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations, which is what Abraham means. So Abram is looking backwards. The name Abram looks backwards, exalted father, just oh somebody who is, is in a right standing or the, the head of the clan. But Abraham means the father of a multitude. And he said, I have made you the father of many nations and it's like wait a minute you haven't I don't even have any children now let me stop right there and just kind of go back Genesis chapter 2 do you remember that story of Adam and Eve when they are Adam and Eve have been uh, created and he made Adam first and then he saw that Adam would be lonely and needed somebody as a partner and so he created Eve and in the last of um, chapter 2 He said, now you are bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And put those two together. And this is really kind of a side note to what the story is for us, but I think it ties in very well with what we are doing as a church. When God's plan was that one man and one woman would come together and become one flesh. Now, I'm not just talking about the sexual experience of being a husband and wife, but what we're saying is when we join ourselves together, our families, our, our lives together, we become one thought, one heart, one impulse, so that the things that we, to get, we do together, we do as God plans. Is that his idea was that we were not to live life alone? We are to live our lives together. And when we pledge our lives in a covenant marriage, we are saying, what is hers is hers and what is mine is hers. That's what we're saying. When guys, my daughter's getting married in, in June. And so I say, okay, well I'm doing the wedding. And so when I, I'm gonna do the wedding, I'm saying, you promised to provide her with a family, a life, plenty of credit cards, a new car. You know, it's just one of those things that when we get into a marriage, when we get into marriage, that God has ordained, God knits our hearts together and our lives together. It's not just a physical thing, but it's a spiritual thing as well. And it's very, very important that we understand that that is God's process. Sometimes we circumvent God's process for what we think is better. God, sit back, I'll take care of this. And that's where we start in our fleshly desires to do our own thing. And that's why we have that's why we have divorce. That's why we have people who leave each other. That's why we have all kinds of marital problems and strife. Th- those, those things are not godly. Those things enter into a godly marriage, and they are a circumstance of our lives, but it's not the way God intended. What it means that those two people that come together in a marriage covenant, you fight together against everything else. And you say, we are knit together so that God will be glorified in the way that we live. My wife and I play pickleball. Some of you may play pickleball. Some of you may not know what pickleball is. We are one, Tonya and I are one of probably only two or three couples in the whole state of Arkansas that are partnered, man and wife, in our, in our, um, when we play. We're always a partner. And so it's a mixed couple we play. People will always say to us, are you guys married? And we'll say yes. And they just, they're they're beyond themselves because they've tried to play with their husband and wife. And one of them usually ends up yelling at the other one. And the other one is crying by the time it leaves. And so for us guys, when we cry, when we leave off the, go off the pickleball court, it's not really a manly thing that happens. But my wife and I, we have determined that Sure, she yells at me, and I take it. Um, And I look at her, and sometimes I'll turn my back and roll my eyes or whatever, you know. But we have determined that in order for us to be a man and a wife, a couple on a pickleball court doesn't make any difference. It is not about us playing and winning. But what we want to do is to show that God is first and foremost in our lives. And even though we may disagree on a court and I do something stupid and she does all the things right and that's usually what happens, we never want people to say, "That's that's a divorce about to happen right there. We always want to say, this is what God put us together to do. And we just find common interest and we have fun doing what it is we want to do. That's really what God's design is, is that covenant marriage relationship means one flesh knit together in unity for God's purpose makes all the difference in the world. And as we go on, we see that what happened to Abram? Abram was promised to be the father of a multitude of nations, but he's 99 years old, doesn't have a child. He starts to get kind of anxious and say, well, I say he gets anxious. Sarai really is the one that gets anxious. Oh, I don't have any children yet. What am I going to do? Why don't you take Hagar as uh, your wife, and then you can have children through her. And, and, and Abram, sure, whatever. you know, He does whatever his wife tells him to do. And they have a child, Ishmael. Now, the interesting interesting thing about this is this, is that Abram and Sarai were put together by God. Their covenant marriage was that they would be one flesh. And they lost sight of what God had promised them. See, God does what God wants to do with us or without us. The key is to be with him when it happens. And so they took it upon themselves to plan their own way to have children because those two were not having any. And so Abram goes in with Hagar and they have a child and it's out of what we would call wedlock because it's with with another person from their, their marriage. But the interesting thing about God's grace is this. Even though that wasn't God's plan and something happened, he says to Ishmael, I will not abandon you. Just because you're not my plan does not mean that I will abandon you. In fact, I will bless you greatly. You will be the father of 12 princes. You will be the father of many, many nations yourself. But it wasn't God's original plan, but he still blesses. And this is the interesting thing about where we are in our lives, is that sometimes some of us have entered a covenant relationship with God. And then we've taken it off to ourselves and say, I want something different, whether it be I'm, whether you've made the mistake of, of of being in a divorce, maybe it was your own idea, maybe it was thrust upon you, maybe whatever the circumstances is, that's not the end of God's grace. Just because we make a mistake, it doesn't make any difference. What the mistake is, we're all going to make them. But God's grace is sufficient that he says, I will still bless no matter what it is that you do. Because why? I am God Almighty and I love you with an everlasting love. And so what Abram is finding in his life is this, if I follow God and do what God wants me to do, I will be blessed. In fact, one of the things that I want you to see is that God says, I am, and then he says, I will, and then he said, you will. In this whole story, he says, um, I will is, um, uh, I am, excuse me, is found in verse 10, Verse 1, and then I will is found in in uh, verses 1 through 10, 15 um, on. And then you shall is used 12 times in this particular chapter. My covenant is used nine times. And so let's look at that. Uh, verse 2 that I make I, my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abraham Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be called Abraham, for you want to circle this. I have made, and this is a completed term in this in the in the Hebrew sentence. This is already established, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. He's saying to Abram right then and there, you are already a father of a multitude. And Abram's going like, whoa, 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 wait, no, no, no. I don't have any kids. So God in his mind already knows what the outcome of his life is gonna be. And he already sees Abram as the father of a multitude, even though Abram does not see it as himself. For 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between you, me and you, and your offspring after, your, after you throughout their generations for a another thing to underline, an everlasting covenant. An everlasting covenant. Now, you know, a covenant is just an agreement between two people. In fact, one of the things that God does is that he makes a lot of unilateral Covenant, which means that whatever he says, he will do. It's nothing to do with what I do. There are a lot of bilateral covenants that God makes between He and Abram. He says that if you follow me and do what I what I what I say, then I will bless you. In fact, one of the covenants or agreements was interesting back in back in Genesis um, chapter two when God said to Abr- uh, to Adam. You can do anything except one thing. What is that? Eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's the one thing. So his covenant was, you can have everything. You just can't do this one thing. When it comes outside of the Garden of Eden with all of the other covenants that are said, God is saying, you do this one thing and I will give you all of this. It's almost a a total opposite of what's going on after the fall and into our lives now. And so God says, if you do this, then you will be blessed. You follow me and do the things that I ask you to do, I will bless you. That's the covenant that Abraham is following. And so when he goes and says, my covenant is between me and your offspring after you throughout their generation for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to you, your offspring after you. And then he goes on and says, verse eight, and I will give you and I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God." Now, the interesting thing about this in verse back in chapter 12, God said, Abram, I will give you all the land from the great sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, all the way to the Euphrates River. Now, we know if you look on a map, even today, May the 18th, 1948, May 14th, 1948, Israel became a nation uh, established there in the, uh, right, right next, between the Mediterranean Sea and the Jordan River, where it is right now, about the land mass size of New Jersey, but in God's promised to Abram, he said, I will give you from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates River. If you look on a map, what that means is that the land that God promised Abram was, all of the land of Israel, plus a lot of the land of Saudi Arabia, almost all of Iraq, and part of almost all of Iran. Jordan, Syria, all of those would be the promised land for God. But the Israelite people only have this small sliver of land that is right there between the Mediterranean and the Jordan. So why is it that God has promised all this land, but they only have realized since 1948 this small piece of land? It is because of little faith. You see God also says that wherever you put your foot I will give to you and that's as far as they want to venture. That was where they're okay. Deuteronomy 28 29 and 30 tells us an incredible story of what God's plan is. In fact, he says if you follow me then I will bless you. But if you do not follow me then I will not bless you. In fact, I will let other people come in and take you over in deuteronomy chapter 28 it says that the land was great the water was was plentiful the crops were great everything around them was joyous there was no problem conflict with other people but then when they stopped following god in deuteronomy chapter 29 what happened was that god said i will not allow the rain the crops will fail your adversaries will overtake you and lead you into captivity is what Deuteronomy chapter 30 does. And Deuteronomy chapter 30 says that, but at the end of a time, I will allow you to go back and be reestablished as my people. Now we know that as the Babylonian captivity, that they were taken away, that they've stopped following God. And, was the, and what was the practice of Israelites back then? Kind of like what we do now is that when things are good, we praise God and we say, this is really good. But then when we get to going for a long time, when it's really good, we start thinking it's ourselves that are doing it. And so therefore we kind of take our eyes off of God. And then God says, I will show you who is in control. And so he allows different people or different things, different circumstances to enter our life in order to be able to get us back on track and to refocus on him. And in this case, with the Israelites, he allowed people to come in, the Babylonians to come in and take him away and then leave him in captivity. But then he also says, I will always bring you back. And then when the Romans came in and they came into power, the same thing happened. They destroyed the temple. All the people, for 2,000 years, they had the diaspora, which meant they were, they were just scattered to the other, utter ends of the world. And then in 1948, God regathered them back, constituted them the nation, gave them their land. It is not their promised land. It's just a small portion of their promised land. It's kind of like our lives even today. God has promised us so much. But what is it that we believe him for? Do we believe him for all the things that he said or just the things that our minds can see? You see, Abram was going to be the father of of a multitude. But at this time at 99, it hadn't happened. He was trusting God to do what it is that he said he was going to do, no matter where it is that he wanted him to go. However, he was going to accomplish it. So God says, I am and I will, but your part is that you will. You shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants. You will not call her Sarai, but Sarah later on in in the chapter, you will call him Isaac O (laughs) and you'll be circumcised. Now, circumcision at this time, we've got just a couple of minutes. Circumcision at this time was a practice that was used unilaterally across across the world. It wasn't new. This wasn't the first time circumcision had been mentioned ever in this world. But it was something that the world had done. Physically, uh, medically, it was the thing that many practiced. But here's the deal. God took a practice that was very common to man and gave it a spiritual setting and said, now you will follow me in doing this thing. You see, all covenants are accompanied by a sign. When the Noahic covenant was made, God said, I will never flood the earth again. What was the sign that he had put in the air, the rainbow in the sky, so that we would know there was a sign. The Davidic covenant with David was that there would actually be a person on the throne forever and ever. But those are Old Testament covenants, right? for Abraham Abraham, the the covenant sign was circumcision those are signs of the Old Testament but we're under the New Testament the New Testament is written in the blood of Christ you see the Old Testament points us to Jesus all the time in fact if you read the, the New Testament you won't understand it unless you understand the Old Testament and so when Jesus came on this earth and he says a new covenant I make in my blood it's not like a an outward display of cutting yourself in order to be able to be a part of God's family. What Romans 2 says is that you will circumcise the flesh of your heart. It is a symbolic gesture to say, this is my part in the covenant that I have with you. No longer is it a sign, but it is an inward response. It's kind of like our baptism that we do even today's church, is that we can't die on the cross. We can't resurrect ourselves. But we come to a place where we understand, I want to be as close to following Jesus as we possibly can. Jesus said, repent and be baptized. And so we are baptized. We are inundated with water, baptized. We are immersed into water, and we are raised to walk in newness of life. Symbolic doesn't save us, you're already saved before that because you've made a a response to follow Jesus, then the obedience of your discipleship says, I will follow in believer's baptism and I will do what it is that God wants me to do. And so in Romans chapter two, when he says you must circumcise the flesh of your heart, what that means is that you tear away any fleshly desire that you have for yourself and you say, I'm gonna follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And that's why we're here even this morning. We're all, if you're a believer, you've probably been baptized. And so when you see baptism happen before you, it is just a thing that says, I've been there. I know exactly what's going on. And that's the fellowship of believers as we all gather together. And that have we, have we, if, if we've gone through the same thing, which is belief in Jesus, then our hearts are knit together as a church. And that's why you're even here. If you're a member of this church, it's probably because you have a gift, a talent, a spiritual gift that this church needs so bad. If you're not a member here and you're just kind of checking it out, it may be worthwhile to think through what it is that you have. Your spiritual giftedness, your talents, your desires. Is God leading you here because he wants to put us all together and knit us into one flesh so to speak as his bride that as god has decided you need to be a part of this church you need to use your gifts and your talents and your spiritual gift to do the things that i've brought you to this church to do because there's a lost and dying world right out the street in front of us and that is why God has started this church. It's not anything that we've done. It's not anything that you have done to establish Second Baptist Church in Greenbrier. It's about what God has done and we are just following in his footsteps. Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.